Um, okay, so the message today, um, I'm really lo just looking forward to sharing this. I really am. It, uh, some stuff in the text um, and just what I think is God's leading just caught me by surprise. And I actually want to point us to the book of Hebrews because I feel like there's a theme in this passage that's actually captured in Hebrews. There's this little verse in chapter four of, of Hebrews and, and it just calls out and um, it just says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence or some translations say boldly so that we, we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. And I just... I just want to name up front that I believe that's the invitation uh, for this morning. I, I, um, when, it, when it comes to the presence of God, when it comes to prayer, and again, this isn't everyone's journey, but it's many of ours, uh, there can be a lot of intimidation. Uh, there can be a lot of insecurity uh, when it comes to prayer and things like that. Uh, there can be uh, a lot of shame, all sorts of walls that are built up between us and the presence of God that are not supposed to be there. They're not supposed to be there. Um, that's not the heart of God for them to be there. That's why Jesus came here uh, to invite us into a new way where those walls are just torn down. And so um, this passage really calls that out. And so we're going to come back to Hebrews at the very, very end. But first, we're going to look, the passage of scripture breaks down into two sections. All right, everybody say two. Two. All right, you're with me. Two sections. And uh, one of those sections is chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. The next is 35 through 45. So we're actually going to start with the first section and let that tee up the next, okay? And so as we look to this passage, it just calls out the context that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. The first half of Mark, we've been going through the book of Mark. We press pause every once in a while um, to do something else. But for over a year now, we've been going through the book of Mark. The first half was like almost three years of Jesus's life. The last half is like just weeks of Jesus's life. So we're moving in to that last half. Things start to pick up and move real, real fast. And so Let's look at verse 32 together, and here's what it says. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise again. Happy Easter. Every day is Easter. I, I mean, we live in the wake of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but we must never forget the death and the suffering of Jesus as well. And so um, let's look at, let's just start right at the first half of verse 32. And here's what it says. It says, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Now, the first thing just to notice here to set up the context is Jesus plus Jerusalem is explosive. In fact, if, if you've been here for a while on this journey with us, you know that there was, there's been so much controversy that's surrounding Jesus. Jesus is incredibly popular at this point, of course, 
Jesus is. People, demons are being cast out. Diseases are being healed. Jesus is like touching untouchables and loving people who society doesn't love and has cast out. Like, yet at the same time, people are really mad at Jesus. Some religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, they're plotting to kill. And Jesus has been up in Galilee in the northern part for most of his ministry and now is moving to Jerusalem intentionally. And it's interesting because much of Jesus's life is actually tied to um, Isaiah, which is a prophet of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. Chapter 40 through 55 um, really prophesies the life of Jesus. And the, the, so the central character in those prophecies, though it doesn't use the name Jesus, uh, is Jesus. And there's actually a, a, a little verse in Isaiah 50, verse 7, and, it, and it's talking about this moment when Jesus is moving to Jerusalem, and it says this, he set his face like a flint or like a stone. And that's a word um, that really means with extreme intentionality. He was resolute. Jesus is like, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to the heart of of the storm. And, and it's like um, mixing two chemicals together that are explosive. Jesus, you don't, you don't, Jesus doesn't go to Jerusalem without something exploding. And so it says that his disciples were what? Did you hear that? His disciples were astonished that he was going. Astonished is a combination of two words, um, like respect, like respect and fear, like, whoa, what's going to happen here? And, and then it says that those who followed even behind the 12, um, Jesus, maybe at a distance, maybe they're following at a distance. You kind of get that impression because something's about to explode and I don't want to get hit with shrapnel. It actually says they were afraid. They were terrified. What Jesus is doing and just going to Jerusalem with intentionality is scary. It's utterly scary for all of those who are around. There's this feeling in the air. You know what I'm talking about? Something's about to happen. So for me, I was reading just the first part of this fast passage, and I found it um, really inspiring, actually. Um, and just this renewed sense, as the scripture does, as the Holy Spirit illuminates the scriptures, we never are to read just alone, like the, God's presence is with us. And, and I just had this sense of feeling inspired that the gospel was and is still worth giving our lives to. Um, even when we have a sense that God is calling us to do scary things. Uh, and, and what came to my mind, you know, there's all, as a, the life of a disciple has all sorts of moments that are, that are scary, actually. And one of the most vivid moments for me in recent history of my life was back in 2020 when we decided to move here. Um, that was, it was scary. I was, I was actually really scared because one, I didn't know all of you. I didn't really know what to expect. Um, two, most of my fear was attached to our family, who, who my kids, Stephanie, they're all here right now, and I, I was afraid. I, I remember being afraid to uproot my family. We're already feeling uncomfortable, to say the least, 2020. Um, but in the midst of all the discomfort, all the uh, trauma from that year, we're uprooting our lives, and I'm afraid that we're going to move our family, and my children um, are going to be traumatized for life <laughs> because of this, and maybe blame the church. I was afraid of that. 
And I, I just, I'm calling this out because when I was reading the passage, it just, it hit me, no, like, and I remember like this sense from God of like, um, we, Stephanie and I, I really believe like in our life together, we haven't played it safe. We've taken a lot of risks and, and now there's this temptation to play it safe. And some of you have heard this, this is a story I've told before. And this sense from God that you're gonna pick now to play it safe. When, the ki- when your children are most impressionable, you're gonna pick now to play it safe. And so we invited our children into the discernment process and this one line that kept ringing in my mind as I was reading this and it has over the past couple of years is when our, our, our kids, when we sat together for a family meeting, we gave them some time to just really pray about it. And um, one of my daughters, Ava, one of the things she said was, if we only have this one life, then why would we not follow Jesus? And I know I've said that before if you've been around. If not, um, that moment really marked me um, because in that moment, if I'm honest, I was like, yeah, we have this one life, but I'm scared. I'm scared. And my child in that moment of faith is, and, and they all, Ava, Sophie, Cammie, Jude, and Stephanie, they were all leading me in a sense in that moment. Like, um, ministering to my soul in the midst of fear. And I just, I, the reason why this came to my mind, because I'm watching Jesus, I'm very visual in my mind. And so I'm imagining Jesus with his face set as a flint going to Jerusalem, to the heart of the storm. Um, the, the first one, the pioneer of our faith, the pioneer who is blazing a path of laying down his life for the sake of other people, for the sake of the gospel, the good news of him, of Jesus, like, and, and that that is still worth giving our all for. I, I, I do not want to teach my children how to live a successful American life. I want to teach them, and it's scary sometimes, to lay it all down for the sake of the gospel. To lay it all down. Our resources, our dreams, to lay it all down. And we, we just sang about it, and I had to write the lyrics down because I knew I'd forget, but that song... We, that we just sang. In fact, Ben Hurdle, who is leading with the team today, like we've been talking about that song for a long time and, and we're gonna bookend, we're gonna do it again at the end of our gathering. It says, we only have one life that will soon pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. And just had this as I'm reading the scriptures, this renewed sense of yes. Now looking back, I'm so grateful. In fact, our whole family, by the way, is just so grateful. We see God's faithfulness. We just love our church family and what the Lord is doing. But it doesn't, like, yes, we will lay it all down for the Lord. And what's interesting about this, um, well, let me read this um, quote from N.T. Wright. He's commenting on this passage, and he says this. People who are following, following Jesus to Jerusalem, found it scary. So did many thinkers in the next few centuries who struggle to find ways of telling the story of Jesus without having the cross at the middle of it. So do many in our own day, but from Jesus' own pronouncement onwards, the claim that he not only died by crucifixion, but did so as the climax of a thought-out vocation has always been at the center of authentic Christianity. 
And what's interesting, this was utterly confusing for people in that day, but in the wake of Jesus, we have seen all sorts of astonishing courage over and over and over that makes even our little move sound like a blip, right? Astonishing courage over, and you see it all, all throughout, like the apostles themselves who are following Jesus, who are confused that Jesus was going to die. Um, most, all of them were actually killed for their faith. And so I was, I, I was remembering Thomas who preached as far east as India, the apostle Thomas, um, where uh, ancient um, Marthoma Christians revere him as their founder. And they claim that he was pierced by the spears of four soldiers. We look at um, Peter, who was crucified uh, under Emperor Nero and the, the persecution that happened there. Andrew, who was brought the gospel to the Asia Minor in modern-day Turkey and Greece, was crucified. And many of these people who couldn't understand the courage of Jesus setting his face like a flint for Jerusalem themselves showed that kind of courage. But something else stuck out to me. Um, and there are today, and, and many of you know this, there are people who die by the thousands for their faith in Jesus. But what about the everyday people who die before they die? You know what I'm talking about? The people that die before they die? The people who have decided to, to lay down their lives um, in, in little ways and in big ways, but are just living everyday life, getting up and, and they're, they're, they're nurses and they're working at the grocery store and they're teachers and all sorts of things. They, they live in neighborhoods just like everybody, like normal neighborhoods and, and settings. And, and um, some of them, uh, I mean, they're scattered all over. They're followers of Jesus who have decided they have a vision that this stuff, all this stuff that we put our identity in, it's not actually the thing. It's a mirage. And all of it is just a means to the kingdom of God advancing in this world. And that is true freedom when God is God and our stuff and our success and everything else isn't God. And you've heard me say it before. The greatest tragedy isn't failure. It's being really successful at things that don't matter in the end. And so Jesus, this kind of courage started with Jesus whose eyes that day, I believe, were, was not filled with militant aggression. We're going to Jerusalem. I think some people, some of his disciples probably wanted it to be militant aggression. Take over Rome, going to Jerusalem. But for Jesus, we actually see, and we, we read about it through scripture in, in Hebrews 12 too, um, but for the joy that lie ahead, Jesus went towards the cross. I actually believe based on how, what I read in scripture, that there was less of a militant aggression and more of a peace-filled conviction. And what's more intense, this or in the midst of this storm where everything is like explosive and yet this non-anxious presence walks into town. And so... Verse, and so let's move on. And now Jesus begins, it gives a prediction. Um, and he says this in verse 32 through 34. He says, again, he took the 12 aside and he told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. This is so interesting. 
Jesus is talking about himself. And this is actually the third time that Jesus tells his disciples what's going to happen. The third time in Mark. So Mark records it three times. We'll see a pattern here in just a moment. Um, in, the, in these three times, this is the third time and it's the most specific. And here you kind of get... Um, it, at least I do in my mind, I kind of get like, Jesus is so specific. He's like, he's like putting it. It's like, he's putting his hands on their face and looking at them in the eyes, right? When you really want to get something across, you're like looking at somebody right in the eyes and he's telling them specifically what's going to happen. I want you to know this. And, uh, he says, we are going to Jerusalem in case you didn't realize this is the road to Jerusalem. Do you understand looking at them? We, I will be delivered to the religious leaders and condemned to death. I just want to make this clear. I'm going to be delivered to the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, and condemned to death. Do you get it? Do you understand? And he goes on. Um, and this is a new detail that he gives. He did it three times. There's two new details. Here's one of them. They will hand me over to the Romans. Do you understand what that means? And then the second new detail was this. The Romans will mock me. Do you get it? They're going to spit on me. They're going to flog me. And they're going to kill me. So I want to make it real clear. This is going to happen. And specifically, I will be buried for three days. But on the third day, I will rise again. Do you got it? Church family, do you got it? Jesus was pretty clear here. All right, so we got it. We're locking this in. So clear to the disciples. Jesus is communicating with his disciples to show them that he's not going to be surprised by any of this. Um, and neither should you be surprised by any of this. But here's what's crazy. They were surprised. Sure enough, people show up to arrest Jesus. Peter has a sword and he, he, he cuts off the ear of the high, of the high priest's servant, cut, cuts off his ear. I don't think he was aiming for the ear. I don't think he's that good. I think he was aiming for his head, but his ear falls off. It's like Jesus told you this was going to happen. And he just, ah, you know, cuts off the ear. And, and how convicting it is when the ear is laying on the ground. This really happened. The ear is on the ground. And Jesus puts it back on the man's face. And, and when Jesus looks at you in that moment, when you cause that wound, he's healing that wound. He's looking at you, putting the ear back on the man's face. It's weird. And, and, and just think about the impression we get of the, the 12 disciples training to be apostles is, is that they were, um, or, <coughs> excuse me, they were like, when Jesus was crucified, they were like in hiding. They were like scared for their lives. Jesus said this would happen. Um, and, and so my, my question is, why were they so caught off guard by this when Jesus was this clear? Well, let's, let's read on to the next section of scripture and we'll see at least part of the reason why, why they were so caught off guard when Jesus was that clear. And here's what it says. Right after that happened, right after Jesus said what's gonna happen to him, here comes James and John. It said, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, a teacher, they said, we want you to do whatever we ask. Imagine the moment. I'm gonna die. The Romans are going to kill me. I'm going to rise again. Uh, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. Um, okay. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit on your right and the other on your left in your glory. 
You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Then Jesus said, you will drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those to whom they have been prepared. And when the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So here we um, see a pattern, and, and, and the pattern is this. Mark mentions three times this prophecy um, that Jesus talks about himself, I'm, I'm gonna die. Three different times in Mark. After each time, the, a disciple, two disciples, the disciples do something inappropriate. Every time. And let's just call it out because there are some inappropriate people in the room. How many of you are sitting by somebody who's a little inappropriate um, that you know? I'm not inappropriate at all. Um, but it's true. There are these moments that, that happen, uh, and then it's like Mark is revealing something in this pattern. Jesus predicts his death. They do something dumb. Um, and so the first one is in Mark chapter 8, uh, when Jesus says he's going to die, and Peter pulls him aside and rebukes him, because that's what you do. You pull Jesus aside, and you yell at him. Um, and, and then in, in Mark chapter 9, uh, it's, it's this moment after Jesus predicts his death where um, John, uh, he just couldn't believe that other people were using the name of Jesus and casting out demons and helping other people. And so he's like, they're not one of us. They shouldn't be doing that. You see, it's almost like they're not hearing what Jesus even said. And then here, it's, it's, it just highlights it for me in Mark chapter 10. James and John bring this ridiculous question to Jesus right after Jesus predicts his death. It's like their ears are shut. It's interesting. So Mark is constantly contrasting kingdoms, um, the world's way of thinking and seeing and, and the kingdom of God's way, the way of the kingdom of God of thinking and of seeing. And so let's look at verse 35, <clears throat> right at the beginning of this section. It says, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do whatever we ask. Okay, we want you to do whatever we ask. Um, there is a sense that we get because of the context that there's some urgency in this question. I mean, think about it. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Revolution, something explosive is in the air. Chances are, James and John, who are two of the three disciples who are closest to Jesus, but they left Peter out because Jesus only has two sides, a right and left, and there can only be two people. And so you almost get like they're, they're plotting like some sort of reality show, like who's going to be on the right, who's going to be on the left. And, and one of them is more prominent than the other, the right or the left. And so at some point, if Jesus decides them, there's going to be a fight in the future about who's actually on the right, because that's the more prominent side. Um, but they're arguing, uh, they, they have this scheme to be on the, on the right or left, but, um, and, but before they, they, Jesus, will you do, they just want to know, will you do whatever we ask? And you get the sense there's this urgency. They have an agenda 
they have a plan that they want Jesus to fit into. And so we see this highlighted in the passage. With this intensity in the air, this is their moment to make the move. This is the moment to cash in. That we may not have another moment. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. And so, they do. And have you ever had a moment where you realize somebody wasn't listening to you? Have you ever had that moment? Um, where you're looking at them and you're trying to say something important and it's like they're looking through you. Or they're looking over your shoulder. How many of you drives you crazy? I apologize if I do that. Um, I don't mean to. I am a human being. But it is this moment where it's like, uh, okay, suffering, blah, 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 blah. Will you do what, what we want you to do for us? Um, it's, it feels really weird because it is weird. It's clunky. It's ridiculous. It feels really disrespectful in some ways. Um, okay. And then we move on to Jesus' response, which is fascinating. Verse 36 through 37. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Jesus, you ever notice Jesus responds to questions with questions all the time? What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit on your right and the other on your left in your glory. Not right now. <laughs> like, around the, not around the campfire. In your glory. Okay. Let one of us sit on your right. Let one of us sit on your left. What an odd, bold, presumptuous thing to say. They clearly want Jesus to partner with the story they're telling instead of them partnering with the story that Jesus is telling. And I had a moment when I was thinking about that. <clears throat> Hold just for a second. A wonderful little box of Kleenex over here. <clears throat> Did not come prepared with a hanky. All right. I had a moment, so our teaching team meets every Tuesday around the scriptures, and we pray, and we talk about last gathering, we read the scriptures together, and, and here's what I pictured, and it could just be my imagination, or it could have been an image that God gave me. I'm not really sure, but either way, God used it, and I'm, I'm looking at this passage in my Bible as I'm thinking about these idiots, and um, I picture a little mirror next to that passage. And I'm looking at my face in that mirror. And, and I, I, it didn't feel to me like Jesus was calling me an idiot, um, but it did feel like an invitation to realize that every time I get disappointed that Jesus doesn't answer a prayer in the way or in the timing I want, I'm doing the same thing. Jesus, I want you to fit into my agenda. I want you to move in the way and the timing that I want. That actually, actually, my disappointment in those moments reveals my brokenness. In, in, in many times, me living a life of having a, a, an agenda, um, having a story that I want to tell, that I want Jesus to part. Jesus, will you partner with me in the story that I want to write versus me partnering with Jesus in the story that Jesus is writing? And it was a, a, a moment of, a, of conviction for me. Um, and it's, this is true. Like, this, this whole idea that we're talking about right here is convicting and it's true and it'll preach. And I... I kept thinking it'll preach, but there's something more going on here. And I, the thought crossed my mind as I was evaluating my own life that if that's the point of the passage, here's what happens. 
a, a metaphorical muz, muzzle is put over our prayer life. If that's the point of this passage alone, then what I find is I don't want to pray. I don't want to talk to Jesus because I don't know half the time what's selfish and what isn't selfish. Most of the time when I say something dumb, I don't realize I'm saying it. You guys know what I'm talking about? And then you look back later and you're like, that was really dumb. Anybody have like that regret, oversharing regret, things like that? I have that quite a bit in my world. Um, if you don't, let's hang out and you'll learn a lot about me. Uh, so it'll put a muzzle over our prayer life. And, and when it comes to prayer, many times we actually learn how to talk to God before we learn how to listen. And so it begins to cut off our relationship with God at that point where we are processing, even before we learn to listen. And, and let, me, let me explain why. Um, uh, when we look through this lens, the main point, and, and, and this is truth, and this is good, and I'll get to that in a moment, is this. Don't be like that. Just stop it. Stop saying dumb things to Jesus. Just don't be like that. Don't be like James and John. Stop saying dumb things to Jesus. And, and that's and that. I know, that doesn't feel good. It didn't to me too as I was looking at that little mirror. Is this me or is this Jesus talking to me? Um, here's the problem. The problem is, uh, if that's the main point, I, I believe I'm too human to pray. Because um, we know as human beings, that's why we have even therapists because they help us get to the root of what's really going on because we don't always see what's really going on. I don't always know the thing under the thing under the thing inside my own heart. And so I'm, I'm silenced by that message. Okay, I don't wanna say, when you don't wanna say something dumb in a group of people, what do you do? You don't say anything at all? Most of us, at least. <clears throat> I say all that to say this. I think there's a deeper point here. Instead of us causing us, listen to this, please, because this, I think, I just really believe there's a lot of freedom in this passage. Instead of causing us to weigh every word in the presence of Jesus, there's something else happening here that I find so beautiful. Like it shines to me like, like, pure, like pure gold. It feels like, like um, it felt as I'm studying this passage, just like breath inside my lungs. Uh, it's, it's, it's beautiful. Um, instead of weighing every word, it frees us to boldly come into the presence of God with our beauty and with our brokenness. Remember at the beginning when I read that passage in Hebrews, the invitation is to boldly come to the throne of grace, the throne, the presence of God. That's what that represents. To boldly come, to come with confidence. All the earthly thrones at that time, you didn't come with boldness and confidence. So the writer of Hebrews is, is contrasting the throne of God with the thrones of this world. That be, because, and you enter a throne, like, what do you, like you, you, I think about um, Esther and, and Xerxes, like coming, if, if Xerxes like reaches out his, his, his scepter, you're okay. If he doesn't, you're gonna be put to death. Like you come in front of kings in the, the throne with, with fear and trembling, but, but here it's like because of Jesus, no, you can run into the lap of God. 
You can jump onto the lap of God on that throne. You can come with confidence. You can come with boldness. And so the, the primary point of this passage being don't, don't say dumb things to Jesus. It can't, there's gotta be something deeper because this will go in contrast to or against like the story of scripture, which is very different. It is Jesus calling broken people close. It's not just Jesus calling broken people close. It's Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, chasing brokenness down attracted to our brokenness, like the compass, like the needle on a compass to the north, like coming after that brokenness because Jesus loves us. It can't be that. It can't be that. And so we're going to rewind and we're going to look for a moment at Jesus's patient response to this presumptuous question. And, and here's what Jesus says. <laughs> they say, um, will you do anything we want you to do for us? And Jesus Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And I, I've, I've been so captivated by that question because what Jesus is encouraging them to do, listen, Jesus is encouraging them to name their desire in his presence. And how many of you know there are some things we desire that are not of God? You know that? There are some desires you have in your heart and I do that aren't of God. And so that question to name a desire in front of, in Christ's presence is so beautiful because what Jesus doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say, think real hard before you speak. Jesus doesn't say, wait, 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 I'm gonna ask you a question. Don't say something dumb. <laughs> Jesus just says, well, what do you want? Knowing, Jesus knows he's inviting from, from their inside for brokenness to come out. Jesus is inviting even, uh, there's plenty of healthy desires in this room in our hearts too, for sure. I, I believe that, but and, and maybe in them as well. I, I do believe that, but, but actually what came to the surface was an unhealthy desire that represented the way of the world, not the way of the kingdom of God. And Jesus invited that to come out. This shook me this week. This is what do you want? And their response is not pretty, but it's honest. Do you hear me, church? It's not pretty, but it's honest. And what do you think Jesus prefers? Pretty prayers or honest prayers? What do you think Jesus prefers? The power of being able to name our true desires in front of the Lord is such an incredible invitation. And, and I just, I'm gonna say this because it, it's one of those things that can sometimes make, make me cringe and you said it, don't feel weird, but... Um, Somebody who's in a leadership position and um, in a church or something like that, like, and I've heard this from time to time, like, or if I'm in a setting, we're about to eat a meal, and they're like, Dave will, Dave will pray. He's a pastor, he'll pray. He's got pretty prayers. He's got good prayers. He'll listen to his prayer. And that whole mindset Sometimes it just breaks my heart because it's actually missing the point. I actually think sometimes eloquent words can be such a distraction. Such a distraction. Um, especially because we know about the heart of God. God is not looking for a pretty, pretty prayers that don't represent reality. And Jesus is inviting actually us to communicate what's, where we're really at, what's really there. James and John reveal their true desire to Jesus. And I just think this is powerful. They feel in this moment safe enough with Jesus to actually say, 
here's what we want. We know you talked about you dying. Maybe they only heard he'll rise. I don't know. We want to share in your glory. We want to be important. We want to be great. We actually want to be better than the other 10 disciples training to be apostles. We want to be better than them. Selfish or not, they aren't pretending. And Jesus' response is a resounding brokenness is welcome here. I invite it. I'm attracted to the brokenness because I want to destroy it to invite you to help. I, 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 brokenness is welcome here. Jesus invites that. And so I'm going to share a couple little points with you. And one of them is this. Jesus is a safe place to name your desire. And we don't need to be afraid to say something dumb in Jesus' presence. Jesus can only meet you. We've, we say it all the time. Jesus can only meet you where you are. Not where you wish you were, but where you actually are. And so let's look at verses 38 through 40 as we move through this passage. It says this. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup? I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. We, we can, they answer. Yeah. Um, Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right and left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom, I have, who, whom they have been prepared for. And he says this, this little statement here, Jesus, when they ask this, this question, now here's the compassion of Jesus. Jesus tells them, you don't know what you're asking. Have you ever prayed a prayer that you are really glad God didn't answer? Have you ever had that moment where you look back and you're like, thank you. I prayed a lot of those when I was a child. Get me out of this and I will do anything for you. You know, I mean, you just... The prayers that we pray are, sometimes it can feel pretty dangerous when we look back and we're like, oh man, I can't believe that I, I, I thought of, and he, Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. In other words, there's a bigger picture and a perspective beyond your limited one. Now here's what we know about the, cu the metaphor of the cup and the baptism. The cup here, when Jesus talks about it, means um, that Jesus is going to suffer for the sake of others. That's that's uh, kind of the idea. Jesus is going to die on the cross, suffer for the sake of others. They have no idea the ramifications of what's about to happen, um, but they are going to taste in suffering as well. You will eventually drink from this cup. When they're saying, yeah, we can drink from that cup, they don't really know fully what Jesus is talking about. The baptism is that Jesus will die for this mission, and Jesus will rise again, just like baptism being baptized in water, representing a, a, a sort of death. And coming out of the water, um, it's like a new life. You're, it's like rising to a new life in Christ. So what baptism, um, the new life in Christ, what, what it represents. And, and here, uh, it's talking about Jesus' literal death and resurrection. And they will participate in that as well. Um, they are going to die, and, and they are, will eventually, just like all of us, when we die, we will rise again. There will be a new creation, a new heaven and earth, and... And that will happen. Um, we will taste that. And I had this um, moment, and I'm going to share this briefly. I've, sh I've shared it before, a silly little moment. And this was years ago now. I remember it, though, because I've shared it before. Um, and I'm in my kitchen, and I'm cooking on a pan, and there's a squirrel out the window eating a nut. And the squirrel's looking through the window at me. And I think to myself, a really ridiculous thought, that squirrel... I wonder if that squirrel thinks I'm an idiot for spending all this time cooking. Well, you just get a nut off a tree and eat it. And then it hit me, oh, like light bulbs. The squirrel has no idea what's going on. 
Didn't even understand the window he was looking through. What's that, a human? I don't know, a predator. That's probably what it's saying, but he's, he's in there and I'm out here and I'm okay. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm overthinking this and making the squirrel a lot smarter than the squirrel actually is. The squirrel can't comprehend anything that I'm doing in that moment. Nothing at all. It probably can't even see through the window just looking at its own reflection because of the sun or something. I have no idea. Here's why I'm telling you this ridiculous story. If a squirrel's intellect is here and mine is here, there, there is, there is a gap. There is the ways in which I live that a squirrel knoweth not. Here's the question. What's the separation between my understanding and God's? That's the, a little parable in the middle of my day years ago that I remember um, staring at me in the face. Uh, there is a humility in coming to, into the presence of God. We never bring our genius to God in prayer. We don't. Any more than a, a squirrel brings genius to me. Like, we, we can't comprehend. So there is a humility in this, in this invitation. Jesus invites them to name their desires, but he doesn't leave it there. Um, Jesus actually, they name it, and it's, it's a broken desire. He says, you don't know what you're asking. There's a perspective beyond yours. Um, you don't know what you're asking. And, and it's this sense that uh, it's okay. I, I, it, for me, as I looked at this, it was an invitation. It's okay to be human before the Lord. But here's, and this is the second thought. So the first one was, Jesus is a safe place to name your desires. The second, in naming your desires, Jesus, by these words, and we see it through scripture, invites us to a posture, not perfection. A posture before the Lord. You don't know what you're asking. What do, you, do you think they believed him? We totally know what we're asking. You're gonna be on a throne and we wanna be right there. Um, and here's the posture I wanna share with you. The posture is moving from a clenched fist. This is the story that I want told in my life. Jesus, honor it. To, okay, I'm gonna name my desire before the Lord. And I may know it's broken or I may not, or it might be beautiful. But I also know that but before the living God, I do not have a perspective that sees all and knows all. And so I name my desire, knowing you won't shun me, Jesus. Knowing like a patient parent, you will lead me and love me. And I surrender it to you so that you can teach me and show me and, and, and dismantle whatever in this desire is not of you in my life. Jesus is a safe place to name our desires. And so with hands open in surrender, we receive the loving leadership of Jesus and Jesus, Jesus gently and directly confronts, here's what he does there, their paradigms by teaching them the way of the kingdom. And here's what Jesus says, verse 41 through 45. When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the question is, um, first, why did the other 10 become angry? Well, we know, it's obvious. The other 10 became angry because of jealousy. The way of the world always separates people. It creates categories. There are people who have, there are people who have not. There are people who succeed, there are people who are failures. But uh, any of our success in a worldly standpoint always falls in the wake or is considered success because other people have not arrived. And you have three disciples who are closest to Jesus. No doubt there was already a tension, a tension amongst those disciples training to be apostles, Peter, James, and John. Why are they close? And now two of them are making a play to be in a place of honor. And actually their jealousy is the same side of, is a different side of the same coin uh, that James and John are. The, the coin, the jealousy and ambition. It's different side sides of the same exact coin. And so Jesus is actually using this moment of selfish ambition in James and John to reveal the same thing in all the disciples. And so like a skilled surgeon, here's what Jesus does. Jesus touches on a tender spot. He talks about the Romans. He says, you know, the rulers and leaders who, who lord over them. He's talking about the Romans. This is a tender spot because the Romans have oppressed their people, their family, their friends for many years. So Jesus touches that tender spot to show them that the same disease, listen, church, that the same disease that caused the Roman oppression of their people is alive inside of them. Same disease. And that's when I just think to myself, being a disciple is sometimes hard because Jesus many times pokes at that thing on the inside that re you realize, I thought I was totally right and I'm wrong. And it can feel like pain if we see God in the wrong light of, uh, it can feel like almost like a, abuse. Like, why are you pointing, why are you making me hurt? It's causing shame. Why are you comparing me to the Romans, Jesus? But instead of the, the pain of an abuser, it's the pain of a surgeon who cuts deep to heal, not to destroy. So Jesus cuts deep into, their, into them. They name, their bro, bro, they name their desire. Jesus is a safe place, and he cuts deep to actually see them set free. There's a different way. Jesus says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of, of all. And then the last thing Jesus does is he personalizes this. Jesus says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. And I believe that Jesus personalized this because those disciples training to be apostles, they didn't need advice. They needed an example to follow. And they were, Jesus was the living example in that day for them to follow. And still today, the life Jesus lived is the example. Right now, in modern day America, or wherever you're watching this, right now is our example to follow. If Jesus had your life and your personality, how would he live? And that's the invitation of this passage. So they continue their journey to Jerusalem, where they will see firsthand the epicenter of greatness in the kingdom of God when Jesus is lifted up on that cross. I wanna invite the worship team to come up at this time and, and all throughout this room, let's just stand together if you're able. 
um, online. If you just want to just position yourself before the Lord in a, a posture to receive and to respond um, to this passage today. I believe um, like such a big tragedy uh, is oftentimes the brokenness in our life. The very thing that, that, that Jesus is trying to go after or draw out of us is the very thing we do everything we can to hide. We're trying to hide it. And, and it's such a tragedy that Jesus is trying to pursue that to set you free. And it's like, hey, you know, it's, it's like, it's a, it's, we're trying to hide it. There's a little quote from a book I read recently, Gentle and Lowly, and it says this, Christ's heart is not drained by our coming to him. His heart is filled up all the more by our coming to him. To put it the other way around, when we hold back lurking in the shadows, fearful and failing, we miss out not only on our own increased comfort, but on Christ's increased comfort. He lives for this. This is what he loves to do. His joy and ours rise and fall together. And so the invitation is real simple today. In Hebrews, we're invited to come boldly to the throne of grace. And so I just want to say this. If, if you're here and it's like your relationship with God has been marked by insecurity timidity, shame, or something else that I didn't mention. And you, you want to run to the throne of grace. You want your relationship with God to be marked with the kind of boldness and confidence that we read about in scripture. I actually want to invite you to a bold step to actually come out of your seat and meet me up here. And we're going to pray together if that's you. And so... Just take a moment, and nobody has to close their eyes. Just a moment of saying, I want my relationship with Jesus to be marked by boldness, by courage, by confidence in the presence of God. I'm just going to give a minute. <clears throat>